Welcome to Hence the Future Podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Mattimore Cronin. And today we're talking about the future of gene editing. So first, let's kind of talk about two big aspects of this. So can you talk about maybe the differences between gene therapy and gene drives? Totally. So, you know, just a couple of days ago, actually, Bill Gates was talking about this very distinction because he's been a big proponent of genetic engineering, but he also has been one of the biggest people to raise the potential downsides, uh, catastrophic mm -hmm. downsides, if we don't proceed cautiously. So mm -hmm. he has brought up the fact that gene therapy is one of the most promising areas for treating human diseases. However, it also could be something that could greatly increase income, not just income inequality, but actual right. your capabilities as a human being. So he, I think this was just yesterday or the day before, Bill Gates brought up the fact that if this is something that's only available to the wealthy, it could create biological differences between right. one sector of society and another sector of society. And it could almost be like going, you know, going back to sort of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, where there's like two hominid species that are living simultaneously, but because one is able to basically design their own genome and the other group is priced out, that it could have just these uh, wide-reaching societal implications. So I think first let's just touch on gene therapy, because gene therapy is pretty much just a good, there's no real downsides to it, um, you know, as long as it's done properly. And there are some really heartwarming stories. So, for instance, there was this young girl who was blind because she just had a certain type of gene that did not allow her eyesight. And they basically just go in there with this CRISPR technology where they're able to target a specific part of the DNA sequence and then replace it so that her gene now is the gene for healthy eyesight. And so this girl now can see and play around and do all the normal things that any girl her age would do, whereas she could not see, she was completely blind before. So there are really great benefits to gene therapy. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's been another today. case, there's been another case too about, you know, people with cancer and they'll have, don they'll have donors um, give their T cells, which are the cells that kill the cancerous cells, and they can actually edit the genome of those donor cells to more effectively kill the cancer cells. So there's just, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. There's so many awesome things that are happening with gene therapy. Um, but we just need to figure out, you know, where's the line, right? right. Yeah, and, and typically what the line has been up until recently, and it just got crossed, which we can talk about, but the line up until recently has been you only edit the genetic code of someone who's already been born, like a fully grown human, and you only do it to change traits that are not heritable. So you do it to change the traits of someone that affects them during their life, but doesn't affect their offspring at all. And that's been pretty successful because even if you screw up, you know, even if they change the genome for that girl with gene therapy and she had three eyeballs popped out of her head, like, okay, that's terrible, but it's not going to pass on to future generations. But right. one thing that we just saw recently is that in China, a doctor 
provided gene editing to the actual embryonic cells, which will also change the entire lineage for that person. So there has now been a pair of twin babies whose gene, whose genetic code was edited. And for their entire lineage going forward, they will have that genetic uh, change. And we have really no idea what implications uh, could arise from that change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and our current understanding of all of the complex interactions in the genome is so rudimentary compared to, you know, the full understanding of where we will be in, let's say, a few decades. Right. Um, so it's really, I think it was really reckless, you know, to do something like that. And, you know, obviously there's been a whole bunch of follow-up reports on right. the scientists when the whole scientific community basically said that he was being very irresponsible yeah um so you know the scientific community thinks that and um i just you know i'm hoping that we can quickly have some regulations in place to make sure that something like this doesn't happen before we have a full understanding of what the implications of these sorts of changes might be yeah and uh, just to give our listeners a little background on, on what this is exactly so this doctor in china he had seven couples who all wanted to have his treatment for HIV resistance. And actually, you know, they've done some follow-up reporting, as you said, and HIV is a big problem in China, um, bigger than many other parts of the world. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult for people who have HIV to get stable jobs, to get loans. It's, it's stigmatized in a way in China that it's not in the U.S. So there is a very big incentive to make sure that your kids don't inherit your HIV if you're a dad or a mom who, who is infected. Mm -hmm. And so this doctor basically flipped this gene. But the way that the doctor did it was it seemed to be that his main goal was just learning and like using them sort of as human guinea pigs rather than doing whatever he could to prevent them from having HIV because right. for instance with with one of the with one of the babies they only took out one instance of the gene you know because so, you know how it's like a b a a b a like and with the other group they they did uh, fully make them HIV resistant so, but, but clearly he wanted to see what are the results of just making this one minor switch, whereas making a more major switch. So he was sort of using them like human guinea pigs. And like you said, how it's a very complicated, you know, the human genome is incredibly complex and you don't always know what turning on one switch is going to do to another part of the mechanism. And they've yep. actually shown through research that by giving these people a resistance to HIV in their genome, they are also making them more at risk for diseases like malaria and some other diseases. Yeah. Um, so it's an incredibly complex game and it's, it's very uh, hard to argue that we're ready to play God right now. Yeah, and that's, that's the really hard thing to think about because if, if we go back to what you were saying earlier about the fact that these kids are now going to pass on these traits to every single um, person in their lineage, every mm -hmm. single child that they have. This is maybe a good time to talk about gene drives. Yeah. Because, so a gene drive is basically a way to automatically pass down these gene edited, uh, the, ge the genes that have been edited, no matter what. 
So in a typical case, like in evolutionary biology, if there's a mutation that arises naturally, the that mutation only sticks around if it's a fit gene. Right. So if if there's some sort of fitness to that gene, then it'll stick around. If not, it'll slowly wean out of the population, which is good. That's that's exactly what we want in evolution. Right. Like for instance, albinos. You know, mm-hmm. about one in you know, I don't know how many it is, maybe one in a million people is albino. If you can imagine a situation where the sun got much, much cooler and you actually needed to take in more vitamin D um, because there wasn't enough sunlight to go around, then we might see a world full of albino people, which is Mm -hmm. as it should be. But like you said, with gene drive, we're basically forcing this trait into all future uh, descendants. And not Mm -hmm. only that, but it doesn't give you the typical allotment that normal reproduction would give you. So, you know, let's say I have blue eyes. Let's say I reproduced with a woman who had brown eyes. We would have like blue, brown, 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 blue. But if you did gene drive and let's say we did a gene drive that was like a red eye gene, all of the kids would have red eyes no matter what. And this is when they first When the first scientist discovered that he could, in fact, do gene drive effectively, that's exactly what he found. He put a gene that changed the mosquito's eyes to red because it was a very visible trait that you could just clearly see if the gene drive was working. And Mm -hmm. he was expecting maybe like, you know, an eighth of the population to have these red eyes. A hundred percent in the next, like two generations later, like a hundred percent of them had red eyes. So. That's the re- crazy. the re- and he has a very noble cause, right? He's trying to yep. get rid of malaria. 1,000 mm-hmm. people die from malaria every single day. So it's a huge uh, issue. And what they're proposing is basically releasing a small amount of mosquitoes that have this, this resistance to malaria and use gene drive so that within just a couple generations, so like, you know, just a couple of years, every single mosquito would be unable to reproduce and it would basically destroy the mosquito population, which sounds great if, you know, your kid just died from malaria. But if you're concerned about the overall ecosphere and uh, what eats malaria or or, sorry, what what eats mosquitoes? What do mosquitoes eat? What do they what role does this how does this fit into Mother Nature's plan? Like Mother Nature doesn't just randomly like, okay, we're going to make mosquitoes, but they're totally pointless. Like they clearly play some integral role. It's all part of a greater system. Like, and when we start to mess with these systems, bad things happen almost universally. So, if you t- think about, you know, in let's say, I think in Australia, they brought in um, cane toads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then these these cane toads basically wipe out. You're gonna have to remind me. I, I'm not. Uh, I forgot about what the yeah so they were brought in to wipe out these beetles that were eating trees and they were destroying these forests that were very particular to australia so they wanted to protect them so they said oh great we'll just bring in all of these cane cane toads from asia they'll eat all the beetles and it's you know the classic tale of you know there was an old lady or (laughs) ate the fly ate the spider whatever Uh they get these cane toads fast forward 10 years the cane toads didn't eat any of the beetles but they did eat 
many other endangered Australian wildlife and plants. And now there are people, there's a subculture in Australia who's made it their life's mission to get rid of cane toads and kill as many as possible by like running them over on the road and hunting them. And so it's really just a disaster. Um, Yeah. And there's a lot of other cases. So the example I was thinking was they brought, so feral cats are also an invasive species, hmm. but there is, there are countless examples of invasive species introduced. I mean, anywhere, even plants can be invasive species. Like um, in the South, kudzu is a big one that basically takes over and suffocates trees. Hmm. Um, And and dogs in, in New Zealand, dogs destroyed almost all of the kiwis, the little flightless birds. And they're the nation's, uh, you know, that's their like mascot animal. Yeah. And so the point of us talking about this is when humans try to play God, it's almost never worked out in the past. I mean, there are cases where we can have a really controlled experiment and, we've you know been able to figure some things out but it almost never works and that's the thing that really scares me about gene drives i'm hoping that with this mosquito example obviously malaria is a terrible thing but is there another way to do it is there a way to create mosquitoes that have some sort of biological mechanism or back some sort of immune function that just kills the malaria Right. So well, so instead of killing the mosquitoes, the mosquitoes kill the malaria virus. Right. So there actually are two different approaches that are being explored right now. One approach is just killing off all mosquitoes. So you basically engineer them so that they cannot reproduce. But these males that can't reproduce monopolize all the females. So you basically end up with no mosquitoes after X years. The other group are actually genetically engineering the mosquitoes so they're malaria resistant. So they cannot carry malaria and they can still reproduce. So that seems like a much more promising approach if it goes as planned. But like you said, we've had a pretty terrible track record with how this has gone. And I think the main issue is that we cannot properly model nature. We don't have a big enough system to model all of the effects of what's going to happen when we introduce a species. Also, we don't even know what the species is going to do. Like we thought, oh yeah, toads like beetles. This cane toad is probably going to eat the beetle we don't like. But we need to do some serious uh, testing before we think about any sort of gene drive initiatives Mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah, and one way that scientists and researchers try to figure out what the implications of these changes will be is through simulations, kind of like you were saying. So they'll simulate several different populations of different species and try to um, create, you know, what are are the likely end um, results of this change. But my problem with that is we don't have enough computational power to true, like you're saying, we don't have enough computational power to truly model nature. And I don't think that's even going to be remotely possible in the next couple decades before we can do quantum simulations, because we can model populations on kind of a macro level, but we can't model things on a micro level. We can't model all the bacteria that vastly influence all of our lives or anything else. So I think we're just in the really early stages, but I'm hoping that with more computational power, we can truly simulate what these changes will be. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like you put a cat and a mouse in a room in a laboratory and the cat eats the mouse and you're like, great, successful. And then you put the cat out in nature and the cat looks around and it's like, well, I see a lot of easier prey here that weren't available in the laboratory. So I'm going to totally uh-huh. change my behavior. It almost mm-hmm. seems like we need either like a very big lab sim- simulation, like maybe like mm-hmm. a whole island, for instance. Yeah. Um, or we need to like somehow understand the decision making process within the animal to understand like what it will actually decide to do given various opportunities. Um, I would like to point out that there's one way of fixing gene drive if we screw it up. So if we screw up gene drive and all of a sudden there's like no, let's say there's like uh, all the malaria is pretty much gone in Africa once we release all of these genetically engineered mosquitoes, but it has some huge unidentified consequence. Like let's say for whatever reason, dengue fever becomes way more rampant because Mm. the malaria resistance makes them more likely to transmit dengue. Um, In that situation, what we can do is basically reintroduce another generation of yet further genetically modified mosquitoes. So then we have another wave of gene drive. And so this is a way that we could fix it. However, it is a slippery slope because if we screw one thing up and then we try to genetically engineer it slightly differently to fix that, then it could become just a never-ending story, whereas we might have been better off to never go down this path to begin with. Yeah, I don't think we want to keep adding duct tape solutions to all of these problems that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Right, right. Unless we could model it properly. Like, let's say we had a supercomputer that was the size of Mars and it was able to accurately model everything that goes on on Earth. That, yeah. that would be like an ideal situation. Cause, but we would need some massive computing power to be able to accurately model what yeah. goes on in nature. And even then, we probably wouldn't get it totally right we probably would only have like a 80 or 90 percent confidence interval yeah it it's so complicated when when we start talking about those huge huge simulations because there's millions billions i mean if we're simulating the world probably trillions of parameters like Mm -hmm. we can't even conceive of that kind of simulation right now Um, but at some point we will be able to Um, the one thing though that we can do earlier, I think we have a better chance of understanding the human genome in a silo first. Hmm. So so there are ways that we can simulate how certain changes in the genome affect the whole. So I'm actually uh, working in a research group in grad school about this very, this, I mean, this exact problem. So one of the postdocs in my research group is working on basically mutating the genome so if you represent the genome as this huge graph so like all these genes have different interactions with other genes if you remove some sort of connection you can see what the end result is so then you can Mm. see you can see which sort of gene mutations you can make without drastically affecting the fitness of the whole organism right um now, these are being done in smaller organisms like E. coli and others like yeast and bacteria cells. But eventually, 
um, you know, I was surprised to find out that the human genome isn't like exponentially greater than a yeast cell. It's, mm. um, it's actually not that uh, much bigger, which is good for humans mm -hmm. because the simpler the genome as a whole, the uh, more fit it tends to be and the more robust it tends to be. Because when you have a really complex genome, it's much more fragile to the environment. Um, right. I saw one meme that's like, we're basically just a, a house plant with more complex emotions. <laughs> we just need lots of sunlight, lots of water. Yep. <laughs> basically. But yeah, I mean, I think we will be able to figure out the interactions in the human genome in the next couple decades. Mm -hmm. I'm just... Um, it's just concerning that we're trying to we're getting ahead of ourselves right. with what we're doing with gene editing given how mm -hmm. little we know yeah and i mean this might be a time to talk about the potential upsides and downsides of human gene editing right yeah so what do so, you see as the upsides well i think it's important just to first just touch on some of the stepping stones of, of how we mm -hmm. got here so i think it's it's key to look at in vitro fertilization and okay. more recently a three-person baby because this is kind of like what we've been become more and more comfortable with as society has gone on so originally the idea of growing a baby in a lab freaked people out they were totally scared by it it seemed totally unnatural but as more and more people had successful outcomes and also as the workforce tended to have babies later in life where it's you need in vitro fertilization to have a mm -hmm. successful result more people adopted it and so this is now very normal you know it's it's not weird at all to have an older couple that is goes IVF more recently they've had three baby three person babies right. so what they found is that when an egg is is older like an older mother who's trying to get pregnant the fluid inside the there's less fluid inside the egg it's like a little bit like almost like dried out and whereas if you have a, a young mother's egg is like very it's got like you know it's full of fresh fluid so what they've figured out is that if you basically take the egg from the mother the older mother who wants to have a kid but you use the fluid from the younger mother's egg you have a way better result and you actually have a much lower risk of any sort of mitochondrial disease mm -hmm. and so they did this and they had great success like right off the bat they had very healthy babies but then people realized oh shit, we're actually combining the DNA of three human beings to create one human being. And that was uh, just something that kind of freaked everyone out. So everyone took a step back. But then we eventually came also to accept that because mm -hmm. it, we did it in a, in a controlled way. We continued to have good results. And now it's fairly normal to have this sort of treatment. It, it goes on, especially in, in Colorado where the treatment first began. So now we're getting into situation where people not only are you know combining the dna from multiple beings but now we're actually getting to the place where we're starting to tweak some of the dna and so i think how we can project that it would go is that first for something that is um first of all easy to solve like let's say sickle cell anemia which is basically just one gene that you can change and totally solve that problem. The second thing is that if it's something that uh, if it's something that 
has positive impact on people's health in an important way. So I don't think we're going to see enhancement right out of the gate, like people becoming stronger, smarter, faster. But we are going to see people making changes to the genome to save their life or to save the, you know, to save Mm -hmm. someone's life. That's where it's always going to start. And then it's going to get into sort of the nice to have, like, okay, let's say your kid has asthma or at risk of diabetes or something that's like, yeah, it's not life or death, but we, we should prevent it if we can. And then I think it'll get into the more enhancement, especially as countries like China, who are already farther along than us, as that sort of starts to become the norm of selecting for certain desirable genes in your kids, then I think that also is going to become the norm in other developed countries that are trying to stay competitive with countries like China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... I mean, I totally agree that it's probably going to follow that progression because there are some diseases that are purely genetic. Like if you have this gene, you will get the disease. I think those will be the first things to get figured out and fixed. And then there are some other diseases when you have a certain gene for it, you're likely or you're more likely to have a certain disease like Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So, so if you can remove these these likely diseases from your genome, or uh, these genes that uh, will likely cause you to get a certain disease, um, that'll probably be the next step. And then, like you were saying, then there's going to be some other genetic factors, like I don't know, height, eye color, anything. Right. I mean, literally anything else. You could even have the um, the muscle insertion points on your bone. A little bit spread, you know, a little bit further up your bones, which means you can basically be a lot stronger. Hmm. So if you move, if you move the insertion points of a muscle on your bicep to be a little bit down your um, forearm a little bit, you can curl like 50 more pounds, basically. Hmm. So that, you know, if you see people that are just monstrous in the gym, there's a there's some genetic reason behind that. So, yeah, I think the progression you laid out is pretty much spot on. And the other interesting question is, what makes you, you? So mm-hmm. the way that my mom likes to think of it, for instance, is that everyone has a soul. And, you know, let's say my mom, you know, if, if my mom had married someone other than my dad, I would still be around in that soul. I would just have different physical features. So that's like a, a Judeo-Christian centric way of looking at it, where it's like you are your soul and that soul is unchanging. Whatever your bodily features are or who your parents happen to be or where you happen to be born, that's all just like the earthly stuff. But mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, you know, what we found with science, especially recently, is that you can't really easily separate the soul from the body. And when you make changes to the genome, it could be that you're also making fundamental changes to who that person is or who that person grows up to be. Um, so I, I wonder if like, if that's going to be a point of contention among religious people or not, or if it's going to have weird consequences, like maybe people who are genetically engineered to be super smart will all have very similar personality traits, or maybe they'll all, you know, sort of, uh, just have something in common that wouldn't otherwise arise if we didn't alter them in a certain way. Maybe mm-hmm. they have less of a flourishing internal life or they 
maybe they're like, I mean, worst case scenario would be like, they're all sociopaths. Like they're all super right. smart and good looking and, and capable, but they really don't care about anyone else because they're using so much of their energy to max out all of their stats that some mm -hmm. things that we're not looking for go unaddressed and therefore suffer. Yeah. And that gets back to the whole question of the complex interactions of the human genome right? and, and how people respond to the environment. Like what, what effect does the genome have on the development of your brain? Cause you yes. know, for me, the, the soul resides kind of in the, the nervous system. I mean the whole body in general, but like fundamentally in the nervous system in the brain yeah. is kind of how I see it. And if you're changing the genome and that affects the development of the brain in some way or another, then, you know, to me, you're a fundamentally different person. And I do think there will probably be some sort of religious pushback here right. if people think that there is just a single soul floating around, doesn't matter what body you have. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. Yeah. Well, but... you bring up a really good point about the environment because... When we think of genome, a lot of people think of it as like the blueprint for how for who a person is, how a person gets made, but that's not really true. It's really like the whole spectrum of possibilities for who that person could be, but then certain genes, certain traits get turned on or turned off yeah. at different parts of life. So yeah. you may, you know, start off with life with like a small cute baby nose and then once puberty hits, you might get a real big honker, for instance, <laughs> or you might like, uh, you know, like, for instance, two twin babies, one of them may have like a, a beauty mark or something that's different, mm -hmm. that just because of whatever their environment is, they have a slightly different, uh, slightly different outcome. But I think something that also is different when we talk about like, for instance, a surrogate mom versus just twins is that mm -hmm. the other factor is the actual bacteria, which you mentioned earlier. So a mm -hmm. big part of any human body is the bacteria. And it's very, I mean, you, you could not digest food without bacteria. It is a crucial part of your life and not just in your stomach, in your whole body. And when you go through the process of birth, you're actually taking on a lot of the bacteria of your mother. So that's why... I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, for instance, if you make a clone, which they have done in, in certain cases, mm -hmm. like with the cow, it, that's one of the reasons why it's not going to turn out the same as the original. The yeah. other is environmental, where if you have a different, if you're growing up in a different way than yep. the former clone or the original, you're going to be a different person, a different being. And that there's a tragic story of this where there was this, this bull that was on Jimmy Kimmel and it was this famous bull and it made a, uh, it made headlines because it was best friends with a kitten. I mean, this is like <laughs> not your normal bull. So yeah. they decided to clone it as part of an experiment and the bull that they cloned, cause the first bull was named chance. The second one they called, okay, we're calling it second chance. Second chance ended up killing its owner, ended up mauling or just, you know, put its mm -hmm. horn and actually just killed the owner. And that wasn't the first time it had mauled the owner like three or four other times, but the owner kept saying like, Oh no, like 
you know, I just I know yeah. I just need to give him space, give him time. But this was not the same bull. This was a completely different bull. So yeah. that question of what makes you you is more complicated than than people think. It's oh, not yeah, just about the genome. Yeah, and even uh, bacteria affect the way you think. It affects the hormone levels that you have. There have been a ton right. of studies recently about the bacteria in your gut affecting or um, causing or alleviating depression. So if you have a terrible gut microbiome, it's more likely that you get depression. Hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a certain makeup that is um, more likely to cause depression, but there's a huge link between your inter your state of mind and your gut microbiome. Right. And you know, even if it's not a clone, if you have one kid that well, I mean, you can see this with your own um, siblings. So I have a, I have a brother, and I mean, we don't look anything alike. We're both pretty tall, but that's I mean, that's kind of where the similarities mm -hmm. uh, end. Um, and you know, I've seen that all over the place. You guys have the same genome. You get fifty percent of your mom and fifty percent of your dad, or okay, yeah. not the exact same genome, but you know, it's it's pretty much or it's similar. And even with um, fraternal twins, like that's the best example. They mm -hmm. have um, similar genomes, but they don't really look the same. Um, right. So yeah, there's, so, there's a lot of complication in this. So do you think cloning should be allowed? Uh, I'll say in the future, possibly. Yeah. Um, it, I don't think people will be very pleased with the results if they follow this chance and second chance example. Right. If, if you're trying to replicate your dog that you lost, then it's not going to happen. Like you, you need to treat these two organisms as fundamentally different. Right. Even if, even if they end up being relatively the same, they're still not the same. The genome right. doesn't make P the plus person. I feel like the way that you treat the clone also mm -hmm. may, plays a big role. So imagine with, sec yeah. with second chance, if you're some bull, you don't know that you're a clone. You're just a bull. But you could probably tell subconsciously that you're being treated in a sort of a weird way. And mm -hmm. it, it might almost feel inauthentic. Like this person thinks you're someone you're like that almost might be the reason he lashed out and killed the guy because he was like wanted to be his own person. But he was being treated as as some uh, copy of some ghost of a former friend. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, I pretty much agree with you. I don't think cloning should be allowed. I do think, however, that if there is a remarkable human being, we should preserve the data of that person's genome for research purposes. So that if, you know, if they agree to oh, that, yeah. so that down the road, like you said, if, if we can understand the human genome first on its own and then understand other animals' genomes, then we're in a much better position for making informed decisions about gene drive and other tactics. Mm. Um, yeah, and okay. then we need to figure out like what causes certain genes to be expressed too. So we even, it, even just understanding the genome itself isn't necessarily enough. I think it's a good start, definitely, but if we don't understand how genes are expressed, um, and, and there is good progress. I'm not an expert in this by any means, but, um, we need, we need kind of the whole picture before we can start truly making these changes because, you know, there's, 
there's a whole bunch of uh, stories about how if you're a kid living in poverty and there's a whole bunch of violence around, your brain is just flooded with cortisol or mm. adrenaline all the time. And right. it affects brain development. So there's, you know, there's all of these, these environmental factors that cause certain genes to be expressed or certain sort of developmental factors. And we just, I think we need to have a holistic approach to solving this problem before we get into the later stages of actually doing full gene editing or gene enhancements and all yeah. that other good stuff. So let me ask you another question. Do you mm -hmm. think we should bring back a Tyrannosaurus Rex? <laughs> I think the only way we should, I think it would be terrible to just, to just bring back the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, if we wanted to do some sort of Jurassic world and we have a giant island that is completely uninhabited, which makes no sense because that's not going to happen. <laughs> You're still going to, if you, you know, maybe we could um, find a newly volcanic island that's pure rock, mm -hmm. and then we create that island from scratch. But let, let's to, assu let's assume we can safely create a Tyrannosaurus Rex. There's no danger, but just ethically, should we? Uh, or is so it okay? I, is there any real reason not to? So I don't think a Tyrannosaurus Rex would even thrive in our current conditions. So I'm not a paleontologist by any means, but my understanding is the atmospheric composition is so much different now than it was when they were living. Like it just wouldn't be mm. able to survive. But we could probably create some like giant greenhouse and yeah. I, I mean, I guess there's, I don't see an ethical problem in and of itself bringing back extinct species, but I think certain species are, definitely better to bring back than others. I think mm. the T-Rex would probably be one of the last ones that I resurrect. Um, <laughs> you think T-Rexes <laughs> and chickens would get along since they're related? <laughs> I Ch think a, ch a chicken is the, the later stages of a T-Rex. Right, <laughs> right. Well, personally, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with bringing back an extinct animal, but we do need to be wise about it. I mean, mm -hmm. if Hollywood has taught us anything... <laughs> yeah, and if you think about the whole invasive species thing that we've been talking about, that's just with current animals. Right. If we bring back something from so long ago, where any organism on the planet is going to have no idea how to handle this new thing. Right. So, but, so but it could completely wipe it out. Wipe out. In know, in that sense, though, I think it'd be a lot safer to. I mean, it sounds ironic, but I think it'd be a lot safer to bring back a T-Rex than, let's say, some sort of small animal that has fast, you know, large reproductive That's uh, true. outcomes. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, if... it's like you can just kill all the T-Rexes. You know, they're really easy to spot. We have the weapons. But mm -hmm. if you release, like, some new type of insect, then you're totally screwed if it yeah. goes haywire. Yeah, the, the issue, too, is how do the local bacteria wherever you know this this organism is developed like how did those evolve because bacteria can evolve extremely quickly. oh that's interesting so if if the bacteria adapts to this new thing and then spreads somewhere else it can create these 
insane diseases that we have no capability of handling. So that would be another thing that yeah. I'm scared of, that I would be scared about when it comes to resurrecting. Um, I, I just think it's such a complex system. No human mind can actually can actually um, figure out what the end result will be. Like right. like we were saying, we need some extremely powerful computers, maybe the size of our solar system, to simulate what's actually happening on Earth. So I think that's a very long time away um, to fully understand it. But we that doesn't mean we can't make small changes in the process, like as we're as we're getting there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What, so you think that it's probably ethically fine to bring. Back I mean, I don't have per, I don't have a personal I mean, I guess, you know, who knows? But I guess my personal philosophy is that if by um, you know you don't have to believe in fate but i'm just going to use the word mm -hmm. if by fate you come across some fossil that has the complete genetic code of a particular t-rex and a human finds it who is able to recreate this being through gene editing then i think it'd be hard to argue that you're doing something unnatural or against god because we are, we came from God. We're beings just like other beings. And if we happen to have this incredibly rare opportunity to have the full genetic code and the full know-how to create mm -hmm. this being, then I don't think there's anything fundamentally unnatural or wrong with that just because we ourselves are part of nature. And if we have this urge to do something and, but you know, that could also, you could also use that to make an excuse for almost anything that it's right. like natural so you definitely want to also consider what is for the greater good you know yeah. wh what should we be doing is, is this what's mm -hmm. the real upside versus the downsides so we we definitely got to consider that but i don't think there's like a a non-starter when it comes to bringing back animals i think it's something that we can talk about yeah yeah that's <laughs> bringing up fate is uh, kind of scary to think about you know if there is some sort of governing power which you know I, I don't know if there is um but if we do come across some bacteria that's stuck in amber from forever ago that has the ability to completely wipe out humanity what if that is fate and that's you know mother nature's way of getting rid of these pet these parasites called humans that are living you know and destroying the world you know there's there's a hey, lot of that's weird what the things. great mother wants <laughs> who are we to question her <laughs> yeah yeah well i think i mean unless there's anything else you want to touch on i think it'd be good to get into the future scenarios yeah sounds good all right so let's take a quick break and then let's get into the worst case best case and most likely future scenarios all right so what do you think is the worst case scenario Worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario for the future of gene editing, in my mind, is that we start out with a wild west of gene editing. And what would facilitate that is if the restrictions on gene editing are so strict that scientists with big ambitions can't help themselves. Like, let's say if America completely outlaws gene editing, but scientists who 
have made it their life's passion in this field, they just continue to do it. So it basically becomes like almost like a black market sort of a thing. Mm. And what would result is an improper use of gene drive or gene editing in general. And that could lead to extinction. Um, it could lead to infertility. It could lead to some new antibiotic resistant disease that mm -hmm. leads to the extinction of humanity. And, you know, like we said earlier, it's possible that we could fix it if we, you know, at the 11th hour, if we realize what's happening and, you know, in some heroic act, a scientist genetically engineers like two healthy babies that can live on and, you know, <laughs> or whatever, like, yeah. you know, there are always ways we can come back from the brink. But mm -hmm. I think the biggest risk is actually if we leave this this field as being so strict and so regulated that people can't help themselves, but they just start experimenting. And through that, we have major unintended consequences, not just for the beings that are edited, but for their entire lineage. And I think this is a very slippery slope. And we can see a world where there's just parasitic invasive species everywhere. Lots of the natural species go away. It turns into something similar to what we're seeing with GMOs, where it's hard for the natural plants to survive because the genetically modified organisms are so much more robust and they, they just take dominance when it comes to reproduction and germification. Mm -hmm. So my worst case scenario is some scenario where gene editing goes unchecked and it leads to disaster for humanity and for all the other natural species on Earth. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the scenarios I was thinking about, just having having all of these super fit organisms that completely wipe out the genetic diversity of all the organisms on mm -hmm. the planet. Because that's one thing that is fundamental to successful evolution is having genetic diversity, right. which kind of brings me to another worst case scenario I was thinking about, which is the whole conversation of eugenics. So if let's say we do figure out the human genome and we do figure out, you know, all of these things that um, people think they want, if we have some or if any country has a policy where every embryo has to have these certain changes, the genetic diversity in the population plummets. Mm. And and when we see that happen, you know, that it's almost like um, when you know, it, it's like siblings, um, you know, reproducing basically. And then you've seen this in the past where it just causes a whole bunch of issues down the line. It causes disease. It causes a whole bunch of mal, um, malformations in, uh, people. So I think if we decrease the genetic diversity through something that might have, you know, well, I don't think it's ever well-intentioned to, you know, do eugenics. But if some person thinks it's probably going to be good and the leader of the country creates this policy where people have to make these changes to their genome, I think that's going to create a huge problem in a few generations. I mean, people might not even be able to reproduce. And then people are being created in test tubes and, you know, not even truly being born through the natural process, which is another scary scenario because we don't know what the implications of that are. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, 
like you said, it's a slippery slope. There's a lot of terrible things that can happen. Um, yeah. I mean, there's also another worst case that I was thinking about where <clears throat> the rich are the only people that have access to this. So let's say the mm. genetic diversity thing wasn't an issue, but only the rich could create, um, they could only, they're the only ones that could enhance them, their embryos and all of that. Then we're going to have a situation like you were talking about in the beginning of the episode where we have this super race mm-hmm. versus a basically a um, the average Joe's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, almost it's just such a mediocre species compared to what it could be potentially, and right. that's a really scary thought because then and it's know, hard to know. It's hard to wrap your head around how big that gap could be. You know, I mentioned like the gap between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens is kind of like a similar way we could look at it about what someone who has optimized genes versus someone who just has like a natural gene selection. But it's there's no reason to think that there's some upper limit that's very close to where we're at now. I mean, it's possible we could seriously increase someone's intellectual capabilities, for instance, um, or their physical prowess. So we don't know where those upper limits are, but we can yeah. only fathom how big that gap would be between someone who's wealthy enough to get full gene editing or someone who maybe they just get like the basic, like, okay, we'll make sure that your kids don't like die before the age of 18 mm-hmm. from a natural, yeah. gen- from a gene disease, genetic disease. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see a case even a century or two down the line where we can fully create these simulations where we can create organisms from scratch, basically. Because if, like you were saying about this gap, the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens really isn't that big. But, I mean, we were all once little bacteria floating around in the sea. That, mm. That's how far we've come over several hundred million, billion years um the issue that uh, you know that might arise or what could happen is we have not a gap that's the same as neanderthals to homo sapiens but bacteria to humans like we could right, we could right. see a much bigger that gap. gap yeah from where we are now so if you think of what a bacteria a single bacteria is to a human i mean there's no comparison obviously humans have much more capability, much more intelligence. Um, so if, and I wonder if there's like, if there's any way you could possibly genetically engineer a human being so that it's able to communicate with some sort of brain machine interface or with like the internet somehow. And then you have like just the best, the best of the biological and the best of the artificial intelligence world all in one being. Yeah. And you know, that, that might start touching on the best case, but it, you know, it's such a tight rope. Like if you fall one way, it's the best possible scenario. Right. If you fall the other way, it's the worst possible scenario. Just like I AI. I mean, Nick Brostrom in mm-hmm. super intelligence, he literally has a chart where it's like AI stability and it's just this little squiggly line in the middle. And if we go too far one way, then it just destroys us. If we go too far the other way, then we just don't achieve it. And it's like, uh-huh. um, yeah. yeah but okay. so it's, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just, I was gonna get into the next scenario, but if you have something else to say, let's let's finish out the worst case. No, I was actually gonna say, you know, that that might be similar to the best case. Best case scenario. It's like we can create organisms from scratch that can fully handle and maybe maybe what we do is create um the organisms that are much more intelligent and can interface with artificial intelligence. Obviously, that's dependent on artificial intelligence becoming a thing. But if we can create this, uh, these highly intelligent beings of the future, it's almost like we create our successors. Like they're, yeah. they transcend us. And yeah. So I was thinking about that too for my best case scenario. The only thing I'm wondering is the timeline. So, for instance, like, let's say, I mean, in my opinion, our biggest challenge is going to be tackling artificial intelligence. And you could see a best case scenario where we're able to genetically engineer humans so that they're better equipped to handle the big questions of AI and how we can have a beneficial outcome. However, if you just look at the timing of it, you know, it's not like we can genetically engineer a baby today and ramp up its intelligence or its ability to understand computers and, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we will be able to do that. But then the baby still has to grow up. So let's say 10 years from now, we can do it. Maybe by the time the baby's 20, he can actually like make some real moves in the world. So now we're talking about 30 years down the line before we could possibly have, uh, you know, a genetically engineered human taking on AI. I don't know if the timing will work out, but that right. is... Uh, you know, that's one potential upside of gene editing. Yeah. Or you could have an AI that basically solves the whole gene issue for right. us. That would be the other. But it's kind of like if you already have that AI, why do we really need? Yeah. You know, it's fair like, enough. Um, so anyways, I guess my best case scenario, just sort of going along the lines of what my worst case was. So rather than having a wild, wild west of gene editing, if we actually make the right choices now with policy where we put common sense measures and controls in there, but we don't stymie innovation. We allow scientists to keep experimenting. We keep an open discussion with society, keep making um, progress. And by doing so, we're able to cure all genetic diseases. So you no longer have to worry about passing on anything detrimental to your babies. But we also have common sense laws about not enhancing in certain ways. So we make it illegal to make certain changes to the genome based on thorough research and other changes to the genome we offer to everyone. So whether you're rich or poor, uh, you know, you could see this in the scenario where there's universal basic health care, where there's right. universal, um, universal basic income. And we eliminate all genetic diseases, but we also all agree on what you can't do to edit a genome. Like that would be the best case scenario for me. Yeah. Yeah, that that definitely sounds like a good scenario. Um, I worry that policymakers are so disconnected from the actual science that they they might make laws that are too restrictive too early mm -hmm. or too lenient too early. Right. So, so we need to have the pace of understanding match the pace of policymaking. So as, as we understand more, know what we don't know and know what we do know, 
um, then we can actually have policies in place that create, you know, this type of innovation that you're talking about. I, you know, if we're going to get into the, the likely scenarios, um, yeah, let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. I, I worry basically of what I was just talking about, that the, that the policymakers won't have these conversations with scientists as much as they should. And I, you know, that's just a foundational thing that I've seen over the past several years that policy and science are so disconnected that there aren't, you know, I don't think the policies are effective. Hmm. It's either too prohibitive or uh, not prohibitive enough. Right. Like, like the whole China example. Yeah. So my, my best case or sorry, my most likely case scenario is similar in that I think we are going to be too prohibitive early on. And then once we see China continue to go further with their gene editing, it's going to spark American pride and America is then going to decide, oh, no, 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 we need to catch up. So then I think we are going Mm -hmm. to be sort of catching up with gene editing. And I think we're going to continue this sort of like arms race of gene editing along with China, with them always making the first bigger move that we might not be ready for yet. And I think it is, at least in the short to medium term, going to lead to inequality because the people who are going to be able to first get access to this once it becomes commercially available are going to be the wealthy people. Now, that's until Mm -hmm. we get some sort of universal basic income, universal basic health care in place. But even after we get that in place, I can't imagine that they would cover any sort of enhancements with universal basic health care. I mean, even preventing genetic diseases may not be covered in universal basic health care. So I think, unfortunately, we are going to see a rise in inequality as a result of gene therapy. However, I do think that just given how much efficiency is increasing and our ability to produce and everything and through AI, I think that the quality of life and the health outcomes of all children in the future will be much better. But I think Mm. because of this head start of the wealthy before we get to that place, I think that is going to create lasting genetic inequality. And it's, it's too far out to think, you know, to think about how we might deal with that once we are in sort of a bifurcated society. Um, But Mm -hmm. that's, that's what seems the most likely to me, just given where we are now and how far we have to go. Yeah. I mean, I would say I have another thought kind of related to what you were saying. Um, If we do have universal basic income and universal health care, I think the gap between the wealthy and the poor won't matter as much. I mean, there won't really be the poor class. They'll be they won't have as much money. But what what's the real difference between the two? I mean, yes, you do have access to some resources, but if you don't have the stress of having to live paycheck to paycheck, then maybe things like your you can live up to um, your true intelligence capacity because you're not so worried all the time and you don't live in these these slums with violence all around you. So I think there's there are things there are policy changes that we can make that affect the expression of the genome 
that, and we don't even need to directly edit. We can still make policy changes that will affect the genome in a sense because it affects um, the environment. Um, and, and I think that would be maybe, again, along the lines of a more tame best case scenario. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think we can get to a more tame best case scenario with just mm -hmm. a few tweaks to mm -hmm. the course that we're already going on. Right. So I, I feel pretty optimistic, at least around this topic for mm -hmm. the future of genetics. Yep. Yeah. Same here. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think this is a good place to end it. So thank you everyone for listening. This has been the future of gene editing. Um, you know, feel free to reach out to us on social media. We've, we've already had some good reach outs from people and we're going to we follow up on those. So feel free to reach out to us anytime and tune in next episode for the future of sound. What has happened, what is currently happening and what will inevitably happen. Oh. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. The past, the present, and the future, baby. What's the world coming to? The past, the present, and the future.